Welcome to Gippsland Anglicans On Air. Today, we continue with our accessible book club during the season of creation. Week by week, we are hearing chapters of Jonathan Cornford's book, Coming Home, to help us strengthen our Christian understanding and obligations for sustainable living. Morningstar Publishing says, in Coming Home, Jonathan Cornford joins biblical theology with analysis of contemporary problems to help chart a practical, hopeful and life-giving path through troubled times. Today's episode is part five, but don't worry if you've missed one. You can listen to Life FM's podcast online anytime. Also, the chapters of this book make sense independently, so you can join in at any point of our journey or plan ahead to hear a particular part. Visit www.gippslandanglicans.org.au for program details. A note about the chapter you're hearing. To keep within our program timeframe, some parts of the chapter have been left out. We invite you to get a copy of the book and read the chapters, and we will also explain those parts when we meet to discuss this section on the 28th of September. Today, you will hear from Gippsland Anglican, Dr. Anne Miller, reading Chapter 4, Sustainability, from Coming Home by Jonathan Cornford, published by Morningstar Publishing. Chapter 4, Sustainability, An Earth's Careful Way of Life. What's the problem? In 2008, biologists Paul Ehrlich and Robert Pringle presented a paper to the National Academy of Sciences in the US, in which they stated that the fate of biological diversity for the next 10 million years will almost certainly be determined during the next 50 to 100 years by the activities of a single species. Never before has it been clearer that the actions of humans are having a profoundly destructive impact upon the earth. Perhaps the single most disturbing indicator of how bad things have become is the rate of species extinction. It is notoriously difficult to pin down just how fast species are disappearing from the planet due to the fact that we still only know a fraction of those that do exist. Nevertheless, there is a broad scientific consensus that current extinction rates are anywhere between a hundred to a thousand times greater than rates characteristics of species in the fossil record. Put simply, over the last hundred years, plant and animal species have disappeared from the planet on a scale comparable to the extinction of the dinosaurs, but at an incomparably quicker rate. And there is little doubt about the cause, us. How are we doing it? That's no mystery. We have known for well over half a century how human action is resulting in rapid species extinction. One, over-exploitation of the Earth's resources through the felling of forests, altering landscapes through mining, unsustainable fishing and hunting, extracting of freshwater for human use or consumption, and the mining of soil through intensive agriculture. Two, destruction of habitat through the clearing of land and draining of wetlands for agriculture and urban development. Three, pollution of habitat through agricultural, urban and industrial runoff 
in the form of nutrient, effluent, toxic chemicals and heavy metals, the spread of non-biodegradable materials, especially plastics, throughout landscapes, waterways and oceans. Four, introduction of invasive plant and animal species, either by accident or design, into ecosystems. Five, climate change, which has multiple, complex and often unpredictable effects on all sorts of plant and animal species, and is now thought to have become the biggest driver of species extinction in the coming century. Globally, the eco-region under most stress is that which is perhaps the least considered, the oceans. The 2005 Millennium Ecosystem Assessment noted that it is now well established that the capacity of the oceans to provide fish for food has declined substantially and in some regions is showing no sign of recovery. Of the 232 fish populations for which there is data, well over half have experienced a collapse of 80% of their population over the time humans have monitored them. Overfishing and destructive fishing techniques have had the largest role to play in this decline. However, they are not the only cause. Human pollution has also significantly altered the health of the oceans. In the middle of the Pacific Ocean, there is a vast area called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch that holds an exceptionally high density of pollutants. Most of it, plastics that originated as land-based rubbish, brought by ocean currents from North America and Asia. There are similar zones in the Atlantic and Indian Oceans. In the Gulf of Mexico, there is a dead zone of ocean more than 17,000 square kilometres that is virtually devoid of oxygen, hypoxic, due to the runoff of fertilisers from the Mississippi River. It is estimated there are over 400 such zones worldwide. However, these impacts are comparatively small when compared with the effect that increasing carbon in the atmosphere and rising temperatures will have on the health of the oceans. Perhaps the next most stressed eco-regions are inland water systems, rivers, lakes, streams and wetlands. Not only are freshwater zones the areas of the world's highest biological diversity, they play a number of essential roles for all human societies. Most importantly, more than four out of five humans depend on renewable inland water sources for drinking water. Currently, around 40% of world food production comes from land irrigated from inland water systems. And freshwater zones are themselves a major source of food, especially for the world's poor. It is estimated that perhaps as much as half of the world's inland water habitats were lost during the 20th century, primarily as a result of water extraction, drainage and infilling, as well as erosion from vegetation clearing. Over half of the world's major rivers have been severely damaged by the construction of more than 50 
50,000 large dams and as possibly as many as 800,000 smaller ones. The Millennium Ecosystem Assessment considers that degradation of inland water systems is widespread, that the supply of fresh water is declining, and that water scarcity and poor water quality is an accelerating condition for one to two billion people. Similar alarming stories can be told about the health of the world's forests, grasslands and drylands. However, there's not enough space here to cover all of these and perhaps there is no need. We get the picture. What is becoming ever clearer is that not only have we made the earth less hospitable for so many of the other creatures who share it, but we are also seriously undermining the viability of our own species. It seems that in a 200-year fit of self-delusion, modern civilization forgot what traditional societies have understood for aeons, that we depend on and are tightly bound into the economy of the natural world. Modern farming has proceeded on the assumption that we can simply mine the soil of nutrients to maximise production and then simply supply ongoing nutrient needs through synthetic fossil fuel-based fertilisers. The result is that each year about 10 million hectares of cropland are lost due to soil erosion worldwide. It is estimated that in the past 40 years, as much as 30% of the world's arable land has become unproductive. At the same time, the world's population and therefore food production needs continues to grow, currently set to reach 9 to 10 billion by 2050, even as world oil production, upon which modern agriculture depends, begins to decline. Reading through this litany of our environmental crises is probably a harrowing experience, as is writing about it. If it is not a harrowing experience, then it probably means you have gone into emotional shutdown, a self-defence mechanism which kicks in as we try to avoid bad news. Indeed, this must be what has happened to us at a civilizational level. How else could we explain the continual failure of our society to face up to our, our global environmental predicament when it has been so well known for so long? But we're not finished with the harrowing story yet. We cannot talk honestly today about our environmental predicament without confronting climate change. None of the environmental challenges discussed above compare to the scale of the challenge posed by the current predicted scenarios of a warming planet. And all of them are significantly exacerbated by this change. Clive Hamilton writes, The shocking fact is that the most optimistic scenario would see concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere reach 650 parts per million 
the pre-industrial level was 280 parts per million, and it now stands at 392 parts per million. That level translates into warming of 4 degrees C above the pre-industrial global average. As oceans warm more slowly, a global average of 4 degrees C means warming of 5 to 6 degrees C on land, and even higher closer to the poles. Warming on this scale and at the expected rate would radically change the conditions of life on Earth. It is not possible to discuss here all the effects that a hotter planet and higher carbon dioxide levels would have on Earth. Suffice it to say, they are legion. Beyond being hotter, with radically different weather patterns and rising sea levels, there are a host of other complex effects, such as acidification of the oceans and reduced capacity of plant life to photosynthesize. Hamilton writes, The impact of burning fossil fuels on the Earth's atmosphere has been so far-reaching that it is the principal factor, along with population growth, that has persuaded Earth system scientists to declare that the Earth has entered a new geological epoch known as the Anthropocene, the age of humans. The Anthropocene is defined by the fact that the human imprint on the global environment has now become so large and active that it rivals some of the great forces of nature in its impact on the functioning of the Earth system. What does the Bible say? It must be acknowledged that for a very long time, the Christian church failed to recognize and teach the responsibility of humans to the rest of creation. Some strains of Christianity have even given license to the wanton exploitation of nature. However, this is not due to any shortcomings about the Bible's teaching on the matter. Far from it. Contrary to popular belief, compared with other environmental philosophies, the biblical view of the natural world and the role of humans within it is the most positive, the most hopeful, the most challenging, and the view that most closely aligns to the actual reality in which we find ourselves. The Bible opens with an amazing statement about the goodness of creation. Genesis 1 is not just an account of the beginning of the world, it is a hymn, a liturgy of praise to the Creator God for the wonder of the world he has made. More than that, this Hebrew creation account is a direct challenge to more negative accounts of the nature of the world. In ancient Near East, the dominant creation story was the Babylonian myth, the Enuma Elish, which describes the creation of the world as a byproduct of the bloody violence and gore of feuding gods. By contrast, Genesis 1 describes the world coming into being through a good god's intention, 
but is an act of love. According to Genesis 1, when we look at the natural world, we are seeing the product of God's love. More controversially, Genesis 1 asserts that human beings have been given a special role within God's creation. Firstly, in verse 26, we have the astounding statement that man and woman are made in God's image. A profoundly radical statement of the dignity of every person, which is the origin, albeit mostly unacknowledged, of the modern conception of human rights. It then goes on to say that God gives human humans dominions over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Some people have claimed this gives humans a license to plunder the earth, but nothing could be further from the truth. Even if we accept this English translation at face value, nearly all political authorities that have existed on the earth have felt the need to claim that their dominion is for the good of all subjects, even if they haven't lived up to such claims. However, the Hebrew word being translated as dominion or rule over in many English Bibles, rada, is much more interesting and is better translated as mastery among, giving a sense of not only a special role for humans, but also their place amongst the other creatures of creation. Like a craftsman working with his tools and materials, God's intentions is that humans achieve a level of skill with an understanding and respect in working with creation that can be regarded as mastery. Nevertheless, even with a less domineering reading of this text, within some forms of secular environmental philosophy, the idea of a special role for the human species is still distasteful. On this point, however, the Bible is merely noting the actual circumstances in which we find ourselves. Only one species on this planet holds the future of the biosphere in its hands. The fact that Earth system scientists have named this age the age of the Anthropocene strikingly confirms what was to the biblical writers already an observable fact. Humanity has frightening power in its hands but it has not yet attained mastery of this capability, hence the litany of destruction related above. The biblical call articulated thousands of years ago has now become a categorical imperative. We simply must begin to attain mastery over our power or we will unmake ourselves and creation with, it, with us. The account of Genesis 2 gives further depth to this understanding of the place and role of humans within creation. In this story, the first human, Adam, is created from the soil of the earth, Adama, a word pun that profoundly locates man's belonging within the whole of creation and that we will return to the ground 
Adama, since from it you were taken. Genesis 3.19 The human is put into the Garden of Eden and instructed by God to work it and to take care of it. Genesis 2.15 NIV We can immediately appreciate from this English translation that we are being instructed to care for the earth. However, in the Hebrew, the vocation given humanity is all the more profound. The word for work, abad, has the sense of meaning to work for, as a servant works for a master or king, that is, to serve. The word behind to keep is the great Hebrew word shamar. It is the same word used in the Aaronic blessing in Numbers 6.24. The Lord bless you and keep you. And contains the meaning of protecting, nurturing and raising to full potential. Yet it is the same word used to frequently instruct the Israelites to keep or to observe the commands of God or the dictates of justice. It is also used to mean to observe in the sense of watching and understanding. For example, Psalms 107, 42 and 43. From this collection of meanings, we can see that to nurture and protect the earth also requires careful observation and understanding of its laws, especially its limits, that we might abide by those laws and limits. A fuller translation of Genesis 2.15 might therefore read, God took the human and set him in the garden to serve and observe it. The recognition of humanity's dependence upon and responsibility to creation is a theme that continues throughout the Old Testament. In the books of the law, which lay out a vision of the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, Particular care is given to placing limits on human production. In the Sabbath laws of Exodus 23 and Leviticus 25, the idea of Sabbath rest, a structured recognition of the need for healing and restoration, is extended from humans to the land itself, but also to animals, both domesticated and wild. The land is to be cultivated and worked for six years, but every seventh year is to be a Sabbath for the land. You shall let it lie rest and lie fallow, so that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the wild animals may eat. Exodus 23.11 If the promised land is to remain a land of plenty, then human production and consumption must be subordinated to the needs of the broader community of creation. More than that, the Israelites are warned again and again that the continued abundance of nature is dependent on following God's way. Should they fail to heed God's instruction on how to live in the promised land and go after false gods, the result will be that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit. Deuteronomy 11.17 
Once again, what the Bible asserted thousands of years ago, we can now see as an empirical fact. The failure of humans to subordinate their production and consumption to the needs of creation, that is, our greed, has indeed contributed to drought, flooding, the disappearance of forests, the denuding of hillsides, the desertification of grasslands, the loss of topsoil, salinization of soil, collapse of fisheries, and the list goes on. The words of the prophet Jeremiah have never rung so true. Your wrongdoing has upset nature's order, and your sins have kept from you her kindly bounty. Jeremiah 5.25 B. There is so much more in the Old Testament that testifies to the multi-layered integration between our connection to God, to creation, and to our own well-being. The Psalms, wisdom books, and prophets are jam-packed with observations of nature that contribute to an understanding of God and understanding of the human predicament. Perhaps most startlingly, in the visions of Isaiah, the redemption of a fallen humanity happens alongside the redemption of a fallen creation. However, this is the theme best explored in the New Testament. Although it seems to have been to a large extent ignored by modern readers, the Apostle Paul repeatedly asserts that the redemptive work of Christ encompasses not just humanity, but all of creation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world, cosmos, to himself, 2 Corinthians 5.19, and see also Ephesians 1.10 and Colossians 1.20. In Romans 8, he goes farther, stating that it is obvious that creation is suffering. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, and that creation's redemption is dependent upon ours. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will ob obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Romans 8, 19-21 Who are the children of God that Paul speaks of? Again and again, the children of God in the Bible are identified as those who are doing what God is doing, putting a broken world back together. In the language of Genesis, the children of God are the ones who reflect the image of God and attain mastery within creation, serving and observing it. Perhaps most significantly, the New Testament confirms emphatically what was already understood by the prophets that the destiny of humanity is not to escape earth or some ethereal heaven, but that heaven is coming to earth. This understanding is the foundation of the way Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10 It is also the final magnificent vision. of the consummation of all things at the close of the book of Revelation. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Revelations 21, 1-2 In summary, most of what the Bible asserts about the natural world is verifiable through our own observation and life experience. 1. Creation is deeply and profoundly good, and it speaks to us of God. 2. Humanity has a special power in the natural world that no other created being has. Without mastery of this power, the impact of humans on nature is profoundly destructive. 3. The suffering of creation, a direct cause of human alienation from God, is in turn a prime source of human suffering. 4. Preservation and nurture of goodness in the natural world is dependent upon humanity attaining mastery of its power. However, the Bible attests one more thing that is only knowable through its own revelation. God, through Christ, is himself working towards the redemption of all creation, and this is inextricably bound in the redemption of humanity. He has made known to us to his hidden purpose to be put into effect when the time was right, namely that the universe, all in heaven and on earth, might be brought into a unity in Christ. Ephesians 1, 9-10, R.A.B. If we are being redeemed by Christ, then we too are being called into his work of redeeming creation. How might we respond? The scale of the problem is enormous. The depth of our calling is profound. What are we to do? Mm-hmm.